everybody. I'm Juan. I'm an alcoholic addict. Hi, Flo. I'm not sure how to start this, so I wound up writing it out. But start off, I never really felt a part of. Um, my mom would always tell me I wasn't her child, that um, they gave her the wrong baby. Uh, <laughs> when she uh, was in the hospital because I didn't look like the other kids. I had red hair, gray eyes, and I was cold black. But not only that, my brother would tell me I wasn't my dad's child and my auntie would tell me the same thing. So I never knew really where I came from. But today I'm real blessed to have been born in such a diverse, diverse family. Um, I grew up in a home of alcoholics, addicts, prostitutes, pimps, hustlers, musicians, military people, and Baptist ministers. Uh, many of the alcoholics were functional. I called, later called them enablers because somebody pointed that out to me, that they were my enablers. I wasn't missing my people. I was missing my enablers. Um, my grandmother, who was my dad's mom, she owned the whole block. Uh, so I was around nothing but my daddy's people during the school year and around my mama's people in the summer because we'd go down there and work the fields. Um, and on my mom's side, they were the same, but um, because they were farmers, I didn't see a lot of what was going on. But what I do remember is that at the age of five, I was given my first beer. It was to make me to go to sleep or act silly. I don't know which one it was, but thus was born the flow show <laughs> at the boom boom room. <laughs> uh, drinking was always acceptable, acceptable because everybody drank <clears throat> except my dad's mom. My daddy was a bartender, so he kept a bar in the house. And so when they wanted at home, we was always going to the bar drinking anyway. And then my aunties and my uncles on my dad's side, they owned beer joints at the end of the street. So we'd go down there and dance for pennies or whatever, you know, and uh, get money like that. Uh, a lot of what has happened over the years um, left me with a lot of losses that kept me looking for things outside of myself. I don't remember what age I was when my cousin started molesting me. He was a heroin addict that never got clean, and he died of AIDS in the penitentiary. Um, but my grandmother, my dad's mom, she was a school teacher, and so she would always t get us involved in Girl Scouts, all those kind of stuff, brownies, 4-H uh, club, this and that and the other, you know. And uh, that taught me that hard work would get me where I needed to go if I just put that, put those things into play. Um, I can't say that I wasn't given things for a successful life because I was. You know, my grandmother was real spiritual. She wasn't a Bible thumper like that. You know, it wasn't you'll get struck down if you tell a lie. Now you'll get your ass whooped if you tell a lie. You know, it was that kind of raising up, you know. So I knew who God was, but I didn't know who Jesus was. And that came later on. You know, um, when I got in middle school, I had a few friends, 
but not a lot of friends. I was the biggest person, the tallest person. And so they would always come get me to go fight for them. You know, they didn't want me for their friend other than that. Because my mother had health issues, I learned how to drive at an early age because my grandmother was a lot older. And uh, so by being around my mom a lot, I parted a lot. You know, she didn't she didn't uh, try to tell me what I could and could not do. I could go where I wanted to and hang out and all of that stuff. And by high school, I was into the boys and had my own car. I had a lot of friends then because I kept money, I kept a car, I kept a job, I kept things, you know. And there I learned that if I kept things, people wanted to you know, be around me. And I hated being alone. Uh, my first drug was window pain acid, marijuana, and alcohol because I had a bar at home. 1976, at 16, I got pregnant. And my mom told me, no, nah, you having an abortion because I'm not raising no more kids. I raised my 11 brothers and sisters. And I remember getting so resentful at her for that. And I carried that resentment for a long time because I never had any other children. In 1976, I graduated from high school. <clears throat> at 16, I left home. Um, I had my own apartment, my own car, had a job, had a boyfriend that was 21. He sold weed. And I worked. Uh, but one night I had left with my best friends. Uh, it was two of my best friends. We went out. And I had a car wreck. And uh, my best friend died in a car wreck. And I was crazy after that. I stayed in shock for a year. And I wished it was me that died in that car wreck. And it took a long time for me to finally come around. It took some years. Uh, and during the course of that time, a lot of people walked away from me. I don't know if they were scared the same thing was going to happen to them or if they were blaming me for that situation or what. So I just continued to hang out with my mom. I really didn't know how to have friendships with women because me and my mom, she was about appearances. But behind closed doors, she was a whole nother something. And um, she kept a boyfriend. That same man was her boyfriend till the day she died. You know, so I didn't know anything about relationships or any of that. But once I came out of that, uh, from 76 to 79, I was out of commission. I don't remember too much about what happened. Later on, one of my friends that was in the car with us, she told me how the accident happened. And that led me to believe that it wasn't my fault. Um, but in 79, I got up one day and I said, you know, I'm ready to leave Austin. I need to do something with my life. I can't sit here and grieve forever. So I wound up going to Prairie View and I stayed I stayed high while I was there. You know, I was making good grades and all of that, but I stayed high throughout the course of the time that I was there. 
but I managed to graduate in 82 in three and a half years. And uh, so once I graduated, I came back to Austin, um, still wishing I was the one that had died in that car wreck. I wanted to OD, but I was too chicken to kill myself. I had good jobs, but a lot of times I was asked to resign rather than getting fired. Uh, and then I got my first DWI. And when I got my DWI, I quit drinking for like three years. Because um, it scared me that bad, I almost flipped my car. But I wound up start using other drugs in place of the drinking. And uh, I got my first theft case when I was 16. I always had to get myself out of trouble because my mom wasn't gonna allow for the embarrassment to be on the family. In 93, I got married to my first husband. <clears throat> he was a major drug dealer. And uh, we stayed married for a while, but he was also a violent man. He was very violent. Um, and uh, I remember during that time I wound up um, robbing him and uh, taking all the dope and all the money and went to the east side and um, somebody had gave me up and told him where I was at he came, busted down the door, drug me out took me out uh, back to the house and when I got to the house the guys were there that had the hit out on me and um, the guy said uh, called me all kind of names and told me the only reason you ain't dead is cause uh, your husband has been so good to us that wasn't enough to cause me to wanna get clean or do anything different in my life and so in 98, I start, I just, 93 to 98, a lot of my story is I was getting so high, I don't remember half of the shit that went down. You know, but what I do remember is some of the things that may have been instrumental in my getting clean and sober today. Because when I think about the fact that I could have been dead and gone today, it, it's a different life than when it was back then. I wanted to die because I felt responsible for my best friend's death. In 98, my dad died and I stayed high, you know, because he was my best friend. He uh, gave me everything I wanted, did everything I wanted to do. 99 came and I found myself in a halfway house. I was looking at 11 years fed. <clears throat> which I would have been just getting out. Somebody had went in my house and dropped their dope and the gun and the weed and all that stuff. I turned my, every house I had, I turned into a dope house. Cause I figured that, figured long before that if I kept the dope, I'd keep the friends, that I'd keep people around and I'd keep my supply, you know. So in 99, I found myself in a halfway house after years of in and out of jails, institutions, and treatment centers. And uh, 
I got clean and I stayed clean for 10 years at, at that time. I'm a five-time felonist. I've never been to the penitentiary. That's purely God's love, grace, and mercy. Never been to the pen, but I have been in and out of jail. Um, I went through this therapeutic community and it taught me Hello? Uh-oh. Oh, we can hear you. Hello? It taught me that um, if I wanted to stay clean, there was some stuff I had to do. I had work to do. What I wound up doing was getting in the church, and I stayed in the church, and I was I managed to stay clean, but something was still missing, you know, and I had had enough of AA to know that that program worked. I just needed to work that program. So I kept telling my friends in the church, man, there's something missing. I, I you know, I'm, I'm yearning for them streets again, you know. And so I started working for a treatment center. And while working there, I started selling dope. And then I started using again because I didn't have a program. And when I started using, I went to my boss and I told her, I said, you know, I'm, I'm using again and uh, I'm gonna go ahead and resign. So I had written a program for the counselors to get uh, treatment if they relapsed. And she said, well, since you wrote that program, why don't you go ahead and be the first one to try it? It was for the first time I realized, man, I am too far out here to even think about going to treatment for 30 days. 30 days ain't going to do me no good. But that was the first time I was honest about where I was in my using. Um, I got married again in 2002. I moved, no, let me back up. I moved to Leona, which is the house my grandmother stayed in in 99. And when I moved there and I relapsed on my job, I opened that house up full throttle. I mean, it was the boom, boom room. It was the liquor, it was the partying, it was the drugs, it was everything. You know, and I wound up raising 10 kids while I was in my addiction during that time. Uh, Their parents would go to the penitentiary and give me the uh, authority to take care of those kids. I don't know how I did it, but I did it. And I'm still in contact with some of them today. Some of them got clean and went on and lived productive lives and some of them didn't. Some of them died, some of them went to the penitentiary. But we know this part of recovery, death institutions or jail. Uh, in 2002, I got married to Michael. I love this man to pieces. Oh my God, he was my addiction. Um, I learned a lot about I can't save nobody during that period. Um, And the longer we stayed together, the longer his addiction became my addiction. If I went out, he went out. If he went out, I went out. 
And we that continued on and on and on until 2007 when I had a nervous breakdown. Um, again, I told a job I resigned. I was using every day. All of that. And I couldn't function anymore. I wound up getting my social security disability during that time as well. Um, I kept dealing drugs. I, I weighed 90 pounds soaking wet when I walked in the treatment this last time. You know, and, and every time I used, I, walk, I walked in weighing 90 pounds. Uh, I wound up writing a book about my life and uh, it never got published. I was getting ready to publish it. It was called In the Blink of an Eye and it talked about using and getting clean and what happens, you know, to the people that got clean. Um, my daddy died in 98, like I said, and I was crushed. So I was still crazy. You know, I, I had my psychiatrist told me, I wound up getting a psychiatrist and he told me, you know, you have too many, when you have too many losses, you wind up going out and using, you know, but if you continue to use flow, you're going to die. I still didn't hear it. You know, it still wasn't enough for me to get clean and sober, you know, I continued on, and from 2009 to 2015, I was homeless out on the streets. I was uh, in housing at Salvation Army from time to time. I went to treatment from time to time. I was back and forth, but I just used, I, every day was just using. I didn't care about getting clean or any of that. I felt hopeless and helpless. And I didn't care if I stayed clean or not. In 2015, I got my divorce uh, when my husband got out to penitentiary and got with somebody else and married them. I was devastated. Um, I remember laying in my bed um, in the fetal position <coughs> saying, Lord, I'm going to trust you with this. Even though I went back out, I knew that he was working in my life because I had people from the um, NA group come to my house and talk to me and ask me what did I want to do. I still wasn't ready. I wound up just using and using and using and using and using, trying to kill myself. So January 1st, 2015, I had been getting high for a week in a hotel, and I've told some people this. I got high in a hotel for a week. I had on a pair of shorts, some flip-flops, and a t-shirt, and it was 30 degrees outside. And all I could think about is where's my next high gonna come from? That morning outside, you know, I said, you know what, I'm done. Because again, I realized that it wasn't no friends in my drug use. You know, when I learned the streets didn't love me, I was devastated again. <laughs> I thought everybody, you know, was there for everybody, but everybody was there for the same thing. Um, 
So I made a phone call. I called uh, my cousin and told her to come pick me up. She came, she picked me up, took me to uh, St. David's, and at which time the psychiatrist, well, first of all, when the nurse took my blood pressure, she immediately gave me something to bring my blood pressure down. She said, you know, if you wouldn't have got here when you did, you would have stroked down. That was a wake-up call for me. I woke up then. I told the psychiatrist, I said, man, you know what? I've been knowing you for years. Same psychiatrist. I said, I've been knowing you for years. I got to do something. I need some help. I need some long-term treatment. And I need it today, not tomorrow. But I wound up staying in there for a week before they sent me the long-term treatment. I say all of that to say all of this. I was fucked up from the beginning, you know, and uh, I really didn't have uh, positive role models, even though they was teachers and all this stuff. They were still addicts and alcoholics and this and that. I thought that's what you do. You know, every day we get up and we pull out the ice chest and the barbecue pit and we sit around and get high all day. I thought that was what everybody did. You know, I didn't know a different because I didn't get out of my circle. I didn't get out of my comfort zone. But I'm real grateful today to have had that um, family life because I see today that's not how I want to have my life today. I'm real blessed to have had my grandmother who taught me that the other side is way better than the side I was living on. I got to a meeting out at Graceland when I got out of treatment and I heard a lady share about how she was going through a divorce and she had the same number of years that I did in my marriage, but this lady was staying clean and I was like, damn, I want to know how she's staying clean because I feel like getting high in a motherfucker. You know, I don't want to be clean. I like the the partying and the hustling and the getting high. And I like that lifestyle, you know. But she, I talked to her after the meeting. And she told me I'd do it one day at a time and to come to meetings. I said, stick with the winners. I remember saying that, I stick with the winners. She said, I stick with the ladies, you know? And I stayed at that treatment center until my housing came through. But um, I didn't know if I was gonna keep my housing or not. You know, cause I never kept no housing. I never kept a damn thing. Everything I got, I lost it to the disease, you know? But I managed to keep my housing. I'm still in my housing for five years now. You know, I have uh, I have been blessed to have had some excellent sponsors who have been patient with me and walked me through the process. The story ain't no different than the rest of a whole lot of people, except I hit a bottom, bottom, bottom. I'm a low bottom, get higher.
get drunker. One drink, one one of my sponsors told me, she said, close, because I told her I'm not an alcoholic. But guess what? I am an alcoholic. You know why? Because when I get relapsed, I take a drink first, and then I'm off to the races. I find myself under the bridge on 7th Street. You know, but my story is, is, is synonymous to a whole bunch of other folks' story. I didn't write a lot on it. I wanted to stick more to the solution that rather than the drunk allowed. Um, so today, you know, I do a lot of things and I work with others in many ways. Uh, I sponsor as well. Um, long-term treatment is what I needed. I was able to focus on myself without outside influences. Oh, you need to pay this, you need to pay that, you need to go here, you need to go there. Uh, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? All of that was a distraction before I learned was a distraction before. Um, I practiced in treatment, what I was going to be doing out here. I see a psychiatrist. I work an Al-Anon program. I attend women's meetings because I love the women. They have taught me so much uh, about recovery. I chair meetings if I can. Now we're in the pandemic, so you got to do things a different way. But you can still do these things and stay clean and sober. Uh, I work the steps, I pray all day long, meditate, read the Bible, I read the big book, I do what's suggested without question, I talk to others, and I help others, and I include recreation. And one of the, another something somebody told me that has really helped me throughout the process is remain flexible. I was rigid in my recovery with those 10 years. I was scared to make a mistake, you know, and if I made a mistake, I beat myself up. When I went back out, I thought I couldn't come back in. I was too ashamed. Oh, you were doing so well, and now I look at you right back. Or I listened to that ism out in the streets or from my family. I told you it wasn't going to work. Why are you doing that? You just one. You can have one drink. You can have one hit. You can have one this, one that. No, Flo can't have a drink of water sometimes <laughs> because it is uh, tricky. This disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and I know that today. So I continue to work my program to the best of my ability. I continue to help others whenever I can. I continue to walk the straight and narrow. I continue to stand word. I continue to do whatever is suggested because that's what it's all about. When Spike asked me to tell my story, <clears throat> I was like, oh, I don't want to go on there and tell my story in front of everybody. <laughs> but you know what? That's part of it. So thanks, Spike, for asking me to share. I appreciate it. And uh, that's all I have.